I got told by my sources, as PJ would say, of goings on up in Seattle. We rolled up at this hotel and all these people who'd uh, from Team New Zealand and I was at the top of an escalator heading down into the bar where I'm told I'd find the team assembled and they looked up and just a look of horror that you know, I was coming down with a camera ready to sort of blow the story apart and that's what happened. And, uh, and it was like being in a, in a Bond movie. I mean, they were checking all around to see there were no helicopters around because it was in the days you didn't want people spying. And and that was, uh, well, you know, and I was just told, you haven't seen anything. You know, you, you don't let this out. Now, I never have done it, but whether that was a test or not, I don't know. And I looked across and it gave me this wry little smile and produced this couple of pages of stuff and starts reading it. I, I was so shocked because he'd never done this before. And I had mine all written out, ready to go, you know, because for, for the big moment, team was going to losing the cup, etc., etc. And he starts reading and I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is all the stuff that I've got. He carried on and he turned around to me and he, was, he just, just, how about that then? And I was looking at him in complete horror because he'd said nearly all the things that I'd been going to say. Martin Tasker spent most of his time behind a microphone, having commentated and presented news stories on anything from the America's Cup and Admiral's Cup to the ocean race and Olympics. In fact, in his time as a reporter with TVNZ, he produced close to 5,500 stories, many of them about yachting. He lifted the lid on a number of news breaks, like the time Russell Coots and Brad Butterworth were lured to a lingy, but was equally happy telling the story about something happening at a grassroots level. Martin talks about his career as both a yachting reporter and commentator in this podcast, and tells the stories about how he and Peter Lester were threatened by Oracle with expulsion from not only the America's Cup, but also the country, what it was like to be on the inside with Team New Zealand in Bermuda in 2017, the lengths he would go to for a story, and the time he became the story after a seemingly innocent comment picked up when he thought he was off air caused a huge controversy. Martin is one of the good guys, and what we call in the industry a good pro. He's always willing to help and is still involved in various projects despite having officially retired. He also loves telling a good story, and indulges in a few in this podcast. So I hope you enjoy. Well, joining us on the show now is Martin Tasker. Welcome. Good day. Good day, Michael. Well, you've been on my list for some time, um, synonymous with the America's Cup, obviously, having been involved in some capacity for more than 20 years or so. Um, what do you make of the probability of the next one being held offshore? Oh, I think it would be really sad if that does happen. Uh, really, really sad. I mean, after all the effort to get it back here, it would be tragic if it, if it went offshore. Um, I'm not as much in the loop as I once was uh, when I had a, a, the sort of inside skinny on what was going on. So uh, 
I'm just speaking from my own heart that I would be just terribly sad if it went if it did go overseas. At the same time, I can uh, you know somebody could probably explain to me why, and uh, I'm sure there's a there, there, there would have to be sound reasons to be doing it, and they're probably going to be financial, and that would get us uh, travelling down uh, uh, a rabbit hole, as you could say, of uh, enormous proportions about the financing of the America's Cup. So. Uh, I just think it would be terribly sad because New Zealand should get it. It's a fantastic venue. It would be fantastic for the country. But I'm sure there are pretty sound reasons if it doesn't get here. Do you have a spare 100 million you could uh, chip in and (laughs) and keep it here? (laughs) I wish I did. I'd love to be in that position. Uh, I mean, money has been one of the eternal uh, fascinations of the America's Cup and Certainly, uh, I guess in the years that I've been doing it since 96, 97, when I first took it on, uh, I've always just, I mean, the money is just uh, in so many degrees eye-watering and the experiences that you get and the way that you, you tangle with the money, even just as a journalist, you're just trying to look at these numbers. Um but then you also look at the returns, and uh, I think that's something that people tend to forget. And I do remember vividly, and it's something, uh, you know, uh, uh, there were two sort of mantras whenever the money came up where I was concerned. Trevor Mallard was the one when, um, when he said, if you look at the facts, it's a no-brainer. And all the political parties in the experience, well, both political parties, in my experience of covering the Cup, uh, have all been on side because it's a very sensible thing to be because financially you know people say oh we're giving them the money you don't get the money if somebody comes to you and says look you give me a dollar and i'll give you two back uh and that certainly on two of the campaigns was very much the case then uh you know you would say yes because that was the kind of money they were talking about and i remember very you know when, when there was a lot of skepticism about this and uh you talked to Peter Blake about how he got the thing going in the first place. And he, I remember saying to me that, um, I said, what's it going to be worth? And he said, well, somewhere between, you know, five and 700 million benefit to the economy. And people were going, oh. and it, it turned out to be 640. This was for the first defense here. And that was 640 million was an astonishing amount of money. And it was also a very conservative amount of money uh, because it didn't take into account the overseas media exposure, which was colossal. I mean, at the time, Prada here, when they were here the first time round, in Italy, they were getting uh, they were getting figures normally reserved for football and Formula One on the telly there. But at the time, there was no really firm way of saying what that was worth, and they do know that now. So always, it's been a cash cow if you played it right. And uh, I think it was so sad that COVID happened and. And it wrecked the uh, the deal here, but I, I still, as I say, I'll be terribly sad if it if it goes for want of uh, of, of the money. Well, yeah, well, we've seen uh, the I guess the proliferation of other events, and you look at things like Sale GP having game momentum and more visibility. And next year, we're going to see more teams joining there. You know, what sort of future do you see for the America's Cup? Is is there room for both? I'm sure there probably is room for both. I mean, if you go back in the day, I suppose you would have seen that uh, something like the World Match Racing Tour would have been like the proving ground for people. Maybe that is the role for Sale GP now. I mean, that was, you know, two sets of monohulls and this is uh, now the, uh, the the catamarans or the foiling. 
I mean, for me, the America's Cup is just it just is special. It's 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 not a uh, uh, you know the it's not something to go out on a circuit with in, in that way. It's it's different, and that's part of its uh, its tradition, its magic, its history, and um, I, I think that it has to stay special, and uh, it, there'd have to be room for two things because. You can't just sort of. You know, you've, you've got to accept that the America's Cup is unique, and uh, you can change it in some ways, but you can't just turn it into another another series. You mentioned just before about the money, um, but you know, obviously, yachting at this highest level has always been beset by politics. Um, as a journalist, as a reporter, as a, a TV frontman, is that something you enjoyed? With you know all the rumours and innuendo and legal challenges. Well, that's interesting. I mean, enjoyed I, in a funny kind of way. Yes, I mean, I, yeah, Dennis Connor was the one who said the America's Cup is uh, is the game of life, and uh, I remember, you know, PJ uh, Peter Montgomery, you know, sort of warning me uh, of the sort of vipers pit that I was getting into, and uh, I mean, it, you know, politics has always been a part of it in, in, in some respect, and. I mean, we, you know, I've, I've dabbled in all areas of that because there was the fabulous, you know, the first uh, defence here, which was so amazing, and then there was the horrible acrimony and the bitterness and uh, and and all the rest of it when uh, Lingy came along and and, and poached, um, you know, the the, the, the top players, um, you know, Russell, Coots, and Brad Butterworth, and and what have you, and. That was it. Got pretty ugly, and 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 then other elements of the politics started to get played, and you know, and it was becoming such a massive rich man's game. And when you'd got uh, Larry Ellison and uh, and Ernesto Berdarelli, and then you know, checking the others like Patrizio Bertelli, and uh, you know, the the money and the egos uh, are, are quite colossal. So you you know, after two thousand and seven, it. And I was reckoned that you know when it came to two thousand and seven, um, that and, and it was in Alinghi's hands. And you think, oh well, uh, you know, uh, they, they're going to solidify, you know, that grip on it. But then another billionaire comes along and says, no, you're not. And then it was in the courts all that time. And then we went to, you know, the the giant trimaran up against the uh, against Alinghi's catamaran and. That was riven with uh, ugly, uh, money-loaded politics, and the only people who really did benefit then were the lawyers. How do you balance that as as both a journalist and a commentator? Because those roles are quite different, aren't they? And and you've done that at a couple of America's Cup, I think, what, 2007, 2013? Yeah. Um, well, I think as a journalist i've always tried to just deal with the facts i didn't find that it was it was a hard juggling act personally i mean um if there was a juggling act it was you had to try and not get too offside other because if you did obviously if you could you wouldn't be able to go anywhere and do any reporting um but i found that they dovetailed quite nicely because uh i'd did a very often I was doing two or three roles uh, in, in my sort of America's Cup covering career. So a couple of those I worked for, um, I, I worked with the host broadcaster, uh, well, it, certainly in Valencia. Um, but even with TVNZ, I was doing two jobs. I was working for news, which was a specific requirement. 
but I was also working for sport because I was I was on the spot and I could be there and I could do the stuff. And then that gradually through Valencia morphed into the commentary, which began with radio stuff, which I enjoyed enormously. And the amount of work I'd done for sport as well uh, meant that I just I developed a, um, a knowledge base because of the volume of work uh, that I was getting through uh, that was great for news, but it was also great for sport. And, uh, and, and you know, when I, it, it was a good deal for, for TVNZ because they got more or less two for the price of one. And I found that if you got the knowledge, then commentary, especially in those days when everything was so slow by comparison, you had all this stuff that you could fill with. I mean, we did a, a bunch of films between 2000 and 2003 called SailNZ.TV, worked with a producer called Alan Barnes, and we did 46 episodes of it. And it, it just, you know, that um, improved my knowledge of the whole thing and made, gave me the confidence to, to be able to go into a commentary box and, uh, and, and be able to fill the time and then working with Peter Lester was just one of the joys of my life because it was just so much fun. And being able to do all of that meant that you know so it, it, it made my job as a journalist so much easier because I knew so much more about what was going on uh, than I would have done had I just done news. Were there any occasions maybe when you're commentating you might have let slip something that you shouldn't have? Because, you know, as a journalist, I know you're you're often... Um, given information off the record, usually that is a little bit juicy and, and not for sharing. Um, and yeah, do you find yourself sort of slipping something in there, and you think, "God, I shouldn't have said that." I, I don't. I don't think I actually. Huh. Such a professional, Martin. Aren't you? Oh, I probably did. <laughs> I, I, I think the, the biggest, the 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 only time I got. Uh, I got sort of not wrapped on the knuckles a bit was when I used the word bollocks. But then uh, nowadays, nobody would give a monkey's about that. You can use far worse words and, and you get away with it. Um, no, I don't, I don't recall anything that, that um, I mean, I do know, well, I, yes. I mean, very early in the piece, I found out there were secrets and they had to be kept. And, uh, and that if you let those out, you weren't going to be allowed in. It was almost like a test, I think. I've, well, looking back, I've often wondered if it was some kind of test. But to see whether you know you, you, they could explain something to you about what was going on, but then they would say to you, but please don't put that in because of a reason. So, and I'm, when you were talking about the politics before, and I was thinking way back when I very, very first started... <laughs> I don't think I've actually told this story in public, uh, in a public domain. Um, I was uh, out uh, really early in the piece, just learning the business, learning about the America's Cup, having been asked to take on the the, the, the reporting job, and um, and we went out when I think it would have been with um, uh, fifty. No, it would have been NZL maybe 57 and 60, I can't quite remember now, but it was before the defence. Anyway, we went out uh, for a day's training with the two boats and along with a chase boat 
were a couple of big chase boats, and we got behind Rangitoto, motored into a bay behind Rangitoto, and I was just watching, and uh, they pulled a tarpaulin off, and underneath the tarpaulin, they had a different bow that they wanted to try out. And they'd engineered it so they could undo one bow and then re you know, bolt on, literally almost bolt on this other one, go and try it and trial it all day. And then they changed it on the way back. This was an enormous bow. I mean, it was huge. And, uh, and it was like being in a, in a Bond movie. I mean, they were checking all around to see there were no helicopters around because it was in the days you didn't want people spying. And they were out of range of any of the boats that might come to see it. And that was the knuckle bow that was a really significant development. Uh, Laurie Davidson was involved in that. And that was, uh, well, you know, and I was just told, you haven't seen anything. You know, you, you don't let this out. Now, I never have done it, but whether that was a test or not, I don't know. I guess it's a sort of a uh, a nod to your professionalism that given, you know, you've been around for so long that people clearly trusted you in the end. But I, I, let, let's just move on slightly to the 2017 America's Cup in Bermuda because that was a little bit different, wasn't it? You were hired by, I think, Vodafone and, and Toyota to cover that event and provide content for the Team New Zealand. But you also commentated it for New Zealand TV. You know, what was the... No, no, background 2000, to that. No, in 2017, I'd, so 2016, I was told, uh, you know, I was, they told me that I was no longer required at TVNZ and I wouldn't be doing the next cup. So I left. And, um, and I'd, made, uh, I'd made several suggestions to Team New Zealand as to how I might use, you know, what I'd learned to help them in some kind of press or media outlets some kind of ideas about you know doing a magazine or what have you and uh, there was no budget there, there was there was no money so I was kind of resigned to the fact that that was my cup days done and dusted but I'd also had another think about an idea which ironically came uh, from from Russell Coots because in 2010 when Oracle and Alinghi were going at it in the, the two monster multi-hulls in Valencia in the Deed of Gift match, um, Oracle felt that they were losing badly on the, on the media front because Alinghi were controlling everything. So they set up, Oracle set up a, a sort of little mini America's Cup TV station in the Oracle base. And it was run by a friend who, uh, a friend of ours, a guy called Cliff Webb, who, an English guy who Pete and I had both worked on the we'd done like five years working with him on the uh, career match cup as commentators and he always referred to us as his safe pair of hands and he persuaded uh, uh, Russell Coots and Larry Ellison that we should be the the guys to go and uh, run this alternative sort of tv show and uh, and which we did and and uh, it opened my eyes enormously to you know, the the new media and the development the internet the whole massive different audience on a global scale and that worked there and i was thinking about 2017 in bermuda and um the idea was being you know was was put forward well maybe we could you know set up some kind of tv where we do it on the internet and we control it and then i didn't hear anything and then i i got a call one day saying right let's just, let's you know let's make this work and uh the, we had a producer um who was able to handle Ryan Pellet could handle the technical side of it, and then it was just me and Pete. 
And that was a whole other way of doing it. And we wanted to do commentary. And in, indeed, there was a, a bit of a row went on between uh, Team New Zealand and Sky because team, they, they had, a, I think, an American and an Englishman doing the host commentary. And we were keen to, or Team New Zealand were keen that me and Pete should give a Kiwi flavor to the commentary and give that as an option. And we did a kind of illicit one, and that kind of got the lawyers a bit agitated. So we had to back off because we were doing our own little version and putting it up later. Um, and then uh, they didn't like that. So we had to stop doing that. But um, the basic premise of what we're doing did work. That you know, the whole, And it was a, it was a game changer. Uh, uh, the budget was found and through Toyota and through, uh, and through Vodafone that they could see a way of making it a commercial viability commercially viable and it worked because we an audience that we might have had of a couple hundred thousand in new zealand was suddenly being measured in millions worldwide so hold it just the thing just took off and got legs of its own and and it was it was a different thing but it was uh took it took it in, took it to a new level really a lot of that stuff was used by mainstream media too wasn't it you know so what sort of access were you given by Team New Zealand, were there any sort of ground rules with them about what you could or couldn't do? Very interesting. Um, there were no, there were no specific ground rules. Um, it was just you used the word before, and that is the key word. And I, it was trust. That the way I likened it, I likened it to being um, an embedded war reporter. I mean, obviously not in that sort of scale, but the same principle that you. Um, you know, you, you're in there, you've got all the inside information, but you wouldn't give out some, you know, you don't give out information to the opposition. I mean, in a war, how stupid would that be? Because you'd, you'd be contributing to your own demise. And so what amazed me, really, was the freedom that we were given, and we were just given it on trust. I mean, there were some classic examples. I mean, when, you know, when, when they nosedived it and nearly ended the campaign. They were putting a lid on exactly how serious the damage was. But for me, being in there was the treat of a lifetime, absolutely, because to see how it operated, having always been on the outside and never been on the, really inside it, was fantastic. It was a huge education. And the great thing was is that the 90-plus percent of what I learned there, I could put out. and. It, it wasn't an issue, and that was massively satisfying. Everybody gained. I know it did. It, it got some hackles were well risen, but uh, at the same time, it was it was a, a new way of doing things, and the uh, and I reckon everybody benefited because the public learned far more about what was going on than they ever knew before. Talk to me a little about about those legal letters that you were getting from Oracle, because I understand that <laughs> basically daily you were getting threats. You and Peter Lester, you know, threatened to be kicked out of the America's Capital, withdrawing your visas. What what was happening there? Um, well, it was this. It was a. It was a bit of a scrap that um, we had suggested to uh, Oracle that, that that we could do the commentary that would give it a New Zealand flavour. As I said. And and they were just it was a t continuous no wall and or else they put at massive costs for how much you know we'd have to hire a studio and all the rest of it and it was you know I mean it was going to cost them nothing you know Pete and I were there we were already being paid for 
And uh, we just felt it was to everybody's benefit that New Zealand could have enjoyed a, you know, a more, you know, partisan and fair, I think fair to say knowledgeable um, uh, commentary than they were otherwise going to get from um, uh, an American and the pomp. And um, the the way it panned out was that we would run a com- we'd record a commentary during the race, and then. After a period of time, we would post that commentary. So if people were interested, if they hadn't been watching through the night, or I can't remember what the timing of it was now, then they could always tune into what we'd uh, what we'd done. And uh, they didn't like that at all. And that's when the, the letters started flying around saying, right, this is, uh, if you don't stop it, uh, we'll, uh, we'll take action and we can, you know, get you uh, withdrawn. So, I mean, I, I, I think it was a threat. We are our legal people at Team New Zealand looking at it. And, and uh, I mean, we, 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 we did back off and uh, it was a bit of a shame. But at the same time, you know, we'd, uh, we were still managing to do our show and it was getting extraordinary figures, um, which, was, which was great. And, and as I say, you know, it, by and large, people learned an awful lot more by virtue of the fact that we'd got in there than if we'd been locked out. I mean, compared with San Francisco, well, there was no comparison as to the as to access and, and what I was able to report on and and put out into the public domain. Yeah, well, it was probably a good idea or a good time rather to sort of step back a little bit, maybe have a, a look at your background and how you got into media and, and specifically yachting media. Um, straight up, you know, do you come from a sailing background? Where does this interest come from? Uh, well, I was brought up by the sea, and I've always had a, I've always had a love for it and a wanderlust. I'm, I'm a, I come from uh, the northeast, from Newcastle, well, near Newcastle, a place called Tynemouth, mouth of the Tyne. And I always reckoned my wanderlust was in part born out of the fact that um, I would watch ships going out of the, and think, I wonder where they're going. And and I, it, it, it's, I still, uh, if I still go home in quotes. Uh, I still love the, the area up there. It's beautiful. And there was a, a little sailing club in Tynemouth Sailing Club. And, uh, and I, I learned to sail there. My, my, my best sailing memory as a youngster, though, was I had a pal. Uh, and his, his mum and dad were kind of like adventure parents. And he had two older sisters. So uh, um, he would be, you know, they'd go off on these tramping holidays or skiing holidays or whatever. And uh, the the sisters had flown the coop, and so he'd be on his own. So they, for the parents, it was great if I would go along. He was, he was my best mate, and so we, I'd go along and have these adventures. And one of them was sailing up uh, the west coast of Scotland in a an old forty eight foot sloop called Sunbeam, and uh, uh, we slept right up in the bow on a little canvas cot berth. And I remember every day of that trip up the west coast. It's the most it was an incredible trip, and it, as as you can tell, it stayed with me. And then I I, I learned to sail more at Tynemouth Sailing Club, and just just crewing enterprises, international fourteens, national twelves with the boats there. And uh, that, that that was, you know, the love I had for it. But uh, uh, the, it was limited as to what I could do. And I also played a lot of rugby. And then I sort of gave it away for a while. Still loved watching it. And then I ended up uh, in uh, after I'd qualified as a journalist. I ended up in in Hong Kong, and got right back into it, and uh, got back into sailing. And it's a, I've only owned a boat once, and that was a, a, I had a sailing junk in Hong Kong called Easy, 
which was the classic misnamer of all time. <laughs> and uh, the best part of it was when it finally, for the umpteenth time, sank. But for the last time, it sank forever in a typhoon, in Typhoon Hope in 1980. And it was sold to me by a Kiwi. A guy called Kevin Sinclair was the news editor of the South China Morning Post, and he employed me when I first arrived there. And uh, he persuaded me to buy this. It was an absolute load of rubbish, really. And uh, But it was a lot of fun. And he always just promised me the hull was sound, and that was about the only bit of it that was. But I was in Hong Kong, it's so great. I, I, I met people there, and I got into ocean racing. And uh, oh, did China Sea races, and it really, uh, I think I did, I think I've done the across the China Sea seven times, I think now. And, uh, and then when I left Hong Kong and dawdled back, uh, I developed a bit more. I'd been doing quite a lot of reporting on yachting uh, as well, because it, it was quite a big sport in, uh, in Hong Kong, and they were figuring and featuring in Admiral's Cups and stuff like that. And then so on the way back to England, I travelled around and I uh, spent seven months in Hawaii, did the... Pan Am Clipper Cup series there, uh, <clears throat> and then ended up in um, in America. Did the um, the Southern Ocean Racing Conference on a Canadian boat, a SORC as it used to be back then. Ended up in uh, sailing sort of you know Fort Lauderdale, Miami, Nassau, and some a guy I'd met in a pommy guy I'd met in uh, Hawaii said there was they were looking for a fourth person to sail do a delivery with a boat called Panda across the Atlantic. So I did that and sailed back to England. And uh, I was well hooked on, I mean, I, I sailed, I ended up getting it. I was in the Royal Northumberland Yacht Club for a couple of years and sailed there. And then I went, uh, got a job in the West Country in Plymouth and I was there for 10 years and sailed virtually every weekend, sailed more in the West Country than I ever have done here, uh, just because of the time and money that, that was out there and sailed, did a lot of racing and cruising and it was great, absolutely loved it. Still do. Don't sail as much as I'd like to. <laughs> well, it sounds like you earned your stripes anyway with the in the sailing world. But you, so just to briefly cap, you worked in newspapers, radio, TV in the UK, Hong Kong, as you mentioned, and the US, and you had twelve years with the BBC. So, despite having been conned by a Kiwi to buy a boat that sunk in Hong <laughs> Kong, how did you move to New Zealand? Come about in the early nineteen nineties. Uh, I mean, I, I, when I worked in Hong Kong, there were a lot of Kiwis there, and I, I was always wanted to come to New Zealand and just just to have a look because they were they had some real. They, some of them are still friends now here, and there was they were cool people, and uh, New Zealanders had a great reputation, and obviously you know for yachting and everything else. But um, when I was in uh, in Newcastle, there was a there used to be a, a system that. Television New Zealand had where they would send journalists on a secondment to the BBC to sort of learn how the BBC did things at the time. And um, when I was in Newcastle, there was a, one of one of those r reporters came over. It was a guy called Hunter Wells, and uh, um, he ended up being my flatmate because I had a flat, and I was always trying to fill it full of people to pay the mortgage. And we had a great time. And before he left, he said, "Oh, there's a." You know, he, I'd, I'd landed this job in Plymouth, and he said, "Oh, there's a girl going to be coming over there. Uh, you know, she's a she's a, a good lady, and uh, you, know, you know, look out, look out for her when you go down." And it was, uh, yes, well, that was it, really. <laughs> 
Claudia was the girl and Claudia Boyden and she was on a secondment from Television New Zealand to the BBC and she was seconded to uh, the BBC in Plymouth, which is in, in, in the southwest. And uh, and we worked on a program together and and through her I started doing a lot of uh, New Zealand sports stories as well. We, we I did uh, the Admirals Cup and Fastnet stuff and all and, and all that sort of stuff and uh, and then eventually she came back to New Zealand and uh, and I came down to have a look at New Zealand and try and persuade her to come back and she came back and. Uh, uh, I came down here on, on the premise of selling half a dozen programs to the BBC called the New Zealand Connection. And uh, so it's been, a you know, ever since I met Claudia, really, there's been a connection with New Zealand. And uh, she stayed, she came back over and we had 10 years together in Devon and then uh, decided it was time to make the move. And, and we came down here in uh, 1993. And you started work for TVNZ the next day. <laughs> Uh, well, there was sort of uh, we, we we arrived on election day, whatever year it was, ninety three, and so we arrived on the Saturday. On the Sunday, I went into TVNZ to just check things out, and then on the Monday, I started. Yeah, been been there until you know how how, how long it was till uh, twenty seventeen. Yeah, long haul. Well, it wasn't long before you took over uh, the yachting round. Uh, with Jane Dent moving on after the 95 America's Cup. But do you remember your first yachting piece for TVNZ? <laughs> uh, well, f- actually, funnily enough, I'd sort of got a connection about that. The very first yachting story I did in New Zealand was when I came down here chasing Claudia in 1983. Uh, and I did, I was saying, I did this story, bunch of stories called the New Zealand Connection. And one of the stories involved Peter Blake. So I flew into New Zealand, uh, which was a lot more arduous in those days than it is now. It took me like three days of traveling. And I got off the plane. I was met by some friends who took me to have a shower and then straight off to uh, a filming assignment. So the very first person I interviewed within two hours of getting off the plane was Peter Blake, who was standing beside the under-construction hull of Lion, New Zealand, along with Ron Holland, the designer. That was the very first yachting story that I did here, was actually for the BBC. And the connection with New Zealand was that Ron Holland was the designer of Lion, New Zealand, and he also designed a boat that at the time was called Colt Cars GB, and that boat became Drum, and it was built about six miles from my house in Devon. And and that was the connection between the two of them. And Drum was the the round the world boat. It was like a sister ship to Lion, and that was uh, the one that was sailed by Simon Le Bon from Duran uh, Duran. When I first came over here, I did a lot of general news. I worked for the news. I worked for the Home Show, Prime Time. And when I got the chance, I would do sports stories. I always liked sport just because I like sport. And I was originally taken on as a sports reporter um, to do sort of features and things for sports night, as well as the news. And I did a heap of uh, different sports, but I did sort of specialise in golf. So I got overseas a lot doing the golf, and that was sort of 96, 97 and onwards. And then uh, the then new sports editor, Richard Beck, came and said, you know, would you be interested in taking on the America's Cup, uh, looking at the defence in, you know, 99, 2000? And I was that was I was just off. I was just thrilled to bits, and it was uh, 
big shoes to fill with, with Jane, though. I mean, she's Yachting Journalist of the Year. She did the most astonishing job uh, in 95. I mean, I, I, I watched it. <laughs> I watched the cup being won. I was actually, had been, I'd been sent out to cover an All Blacks training session at the Ponamo. So when Team New Zealand crossed the line, I watched it through, through a, the windows at the Takapuna Rugby Club. Um, and felt very cheated by it. <laughs> but, uh, uh, no, I was, I've, it was after that. It, um, it was it was great. And as I say, you know, that led into working for sport and news. So I was doing two jobs all the time. Um, but I lo- I loved that. I loved being able to really get stuck into you know have a bit of uh, given given a bit of duration to do features and and run series and things like like we did with SailNZ.TV. Just just wish I'd kept all my notes and all the recordings as I could have written the book. Obviously, the America's Cup played a big part in your uh, career with TVNZ, but you're also, I guess, known for bringing yachting at all levels to a lot of people. You know, did what was your sort of modus operandi? You know, how did you attack the yachting round and and trying to tell people about the, the sport generally? Well, you're quite right. Uh, I mean, I've, I've, I've really, I, I, I think yachting is, a, is an amazing sport, and I think it's a particularly amazing sport for young people because it, it teaches this um, amazing self confidence, and, and I, I, if I could get a chance to sort of put that across, and also in New Zealand, I mean, the rich man sport thing has always annoyed me because you don't have to be rich to do it. You have to have money to get on, but that's what sort of things like Yachting New Zealand are there to help those help grow the talent and what have you. Um, I mean, compared with England, although England learned their lesson in the Olympics that you know they needed to get down to grassroots and get into it, and they did and got enormous success as a result. But uh, there's lots of little things that spring to mind, and uh, I remember some viewers ringing in one time. There'd been a, st- a storm off Murray's Bay or somewhere like that, and. Some viewer had rung in saying, uh, it's terrible, they've let these kids go out, they're all coming back in, they're capsizing, masts are breaking, sails are people are in the surf and the water and everything else. It's terrible, it's so irresponsible. And what she hadn't really acknowledged was, <laughs> she looked a bit closer, she would see that 98% of those kids have a massive grin on their face, were having the time of their lives and just absolutely loving the excitement of it and the, and the danger and the thrill. And it would apply as well. I was just talking about this the other day for some reason. I think it was a P-class story we did in New Plymouth. Huge seas out there. We were on a big, big Nyad, uh, I think it was a local Coast Guard boat, as a filming platform. And the boats were disappearing. And it was blowing like 25 knots. And these kids handling their boats with such confidence. Uh, I'd, have been, I'd have been pretty apprehensive myself. But they were just... And you see the way that helps people grow. I think it, and it, it's just terrific. And just the whole thing of sailing. I mean, you talk to anybody, you know, from your, your Ben Ainsley's onwards. They get in the water and they feel this freedom and this, this sense of, of controlling something you can't see and making a boat go and, and learning how to make it go quickly. It's a fantastic, at, every, at every level, then it just grows from there, doesn't it? Mm. No, you're totally right. It's it's that independence, making decisions for themselves rather than just following a playbook that um, mm. you know yeah. A, yeah. a coach of a team gives you, and you you sort of have to to follow it religiously. 
You, you, you mentioned the joyous occasion, I guess, that was the America's Cup in Auckland in, in 2000, both from a personal and professional point of view. What about, I guess, 2003? Because it was a disaster for Team New Zealand. Were, were you under pressure to come up with news breaks about what was, what was really going on behind the scenes? Because there's this amazingly insatiable appetite for all things America's Cup in this country. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I was working, I was across a lot, a lot that was going on because I was, again, wearing two hats. I was working for sport and news. We were churning out... Uh, huge amounts of material all the time and, and we'd done all the background to it and we had the cloak and dagger stuff um uh and and that was that was pretty unpleasant uh i mean i was <laughs> in 2000 uh i was over in um i'd gone over to do uh the u.s open at pebble beach because cambo was uh flying high and uh, steve williams had just sort of landed the job um with Tiger Woods, so that's a huge golfing story in one of the great, greatest golfing places in the world. It's absolutely stunning, and we uh, and we had a very good time. We killed it. We got the interviews and got the exclusives, and that was really good. But at the same time, at the end of every day, I was on the phone back to New Zealand, finding out what was going about, who was recruiting who, and that was a big story where um, I got told by my sources, as PJ would say. Uh, of goings on up in Seattle, and uh, long story short, we rolled up at this hotel, and all these people who'd uh, from Team New Zealand. I was at the top of a. It was a, at the W Hotel, very fancy hotel in uh, in Seattle, and I was at the top of an escalator heading down into the bar where I told I'd find the team assembled, and they looked up uh, and just a look of horror that. I was coming down with a camera um, ready to sort of blow the story apart. And that's what happened. And it was uh, very satisfying from a journalistic point of view. But uh, I felt, uh, you know, you also felt a bit, uh, it was you know, difficult for lads who were, who were really t- Team New Zealand at heart, but were being offered sums of money that were going to set them up for life. And I've, I've I've not been one, and I really mean this sincerely. I've I've never I've tried not to judge people by that decision because I've never been in that position. So, if somebody had come up to me and said, uh, "Here's ten million dollars. Uh, we want you to go to you know work for somebody else," I don't know how I would react. But I suspect I would think I can set myself and my family up for life. I'm sorry, boys, but I'm off. And that's you know. The, the odd occasion I've had where someone's come to me is, what do you think I should do? Should I leave? And I say, well, you're going to get set up for life, mate. Go, do it. You've got to do it. So that's why I'm, I'm loath to be critical. It was just a shame it happened the way it did. But, you know, the, the sums of money involved were, were bonkers. And you were you could be set up for life. There's still time for you, Martin. Uh, apparently, you know, you're a bit of a shark on the golf course. Ha, ha, ha. A basking shark, yeah. So, so you moved into commentary role for the 2007 America's Cup in Valencia. Um, you're teaming up with Peter Lester to broadcast for the host broadcaster. Did it feel natural to be moving into commentary? Well, you know, it did, and and I, and I guess it, probably because it was a it was a, a gradual process. I'd done a lot of radio. Uh, I, I worked in radio for the BBC and uh, and in Hong Kong for Radio Television Hong Kong. 
and um, and I really liked radio. And while I was over there working at the beginning, sort of 2004, 5, 6, doing the acts and all that for TVNZ, I was well in with TWI, the host broadcaster, because... Uh, you know, they we we were one of the few people who were covering everything and and you know and, and using the material, um, and also that you know we would help them. Uh, you know, I, I ended up because it was easier, it was quicker. If they let me do the the VNR, the video news release, it meant I could get my hands on all the host broadcaster footage, and they found out that it was you know because I knew you know I knew about the sport and what was required that uh, we could go and knock that off in no time at all. And they were happy. They'd, so they said, yeah, well, if you do our VNRs for you, for us, you can have access to all the footage. And so that went, so we'd go and do the VNR for the host broadcaster, and then we would plunder, working into the night, the extra stuff that we wanted for our program. So I was in there. And also there were some terrific broadcasters operating. Uh, there was doing, doing a really interesting radio uh, program, a guy called Richard Simmons, who was just a terrific bloke. Um, you know, sort of BBC type of person, and um, they'd set up this America's Cup radio, and and I started because I was out every day watching the racing. They would sort of uh, they would come to me at my vantage point, and then he disappeared for a while, uh, and and uh, and he asked me to take over hosting it. Um, so you'd have half a dozen people around the race course, and it was all banter and chat and. Following the racing, but you know, slower races, hours and hours. You had to have fill, 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 because that's what you did all the time. And the stuff I'd done was doing for TVNZ Sport and TVNZ News. As I said before, it's I just I'd, I'd, I'd learned so much that uh, you know I could I could sit there and, and, and happily biff questions around and around the correspondence and that uh, we had at the various places. It was great fun. And that kind of morphed into the, into the TV side of it. I mean, not to say that the first day I was absolutely, um, oh, what's a polite way of say bricking it? I mean, it was just, I don't think I've ever been so nervous in my life. And I gradually reached a stage where instead of being nervous when you sit down, you just can't wait to get into the seat because it was just, especially working with Pete, was so much fun because he's just such a an amazing operator and he he can read stuff on the you know on the boats so far ahead of it happening it was just uh, and then gets really cranked up i mean he doesn't need any encouragement it was just it was fun valencia was a fantastic experience it was really great fun and set us up really to do a whole heap of uh, after that we worked for the next five or six years on projects Right through um, up and uh, to the Volvo, and then uh, and then that morphed into the nightmare of San Francisco. But the Volvo was hugely enjoyable with Pete. We did every port uh, again. We were working for the host broadcaster, TVNZ News, TVNZ Sport, and it was a, a massive amount of work. Crazy, crazy time, but uh, but huge fun. And uh, and that led then into, uh, as I say, the the nightmare that was San Francisco. We'll have a look at some of those things um, shortly. But I just want to take you back to, to 2007, and you talked about how such a joy it was to work with Peter Lester. Tell me about that final race, though, when Alingi narrowly beat Team New Zealand and what you'd prepared to say but didn't really get to say it. Yeah, the one-second the one, yeah, the one second win. Well, it was really funny because um, Pete, just, Pete never takes notes. 
never writes notes. I mean, I we, if you came into our little box there, the, it was wall-to-wall lists and info and facts on covering all the walls of the commentary box. Photos, slogans, sayings. Uh, we used to do, you know, all, all that was my job was to deal with all that, with all the facts and figures and everything. And, and Peter, do, he, he, the, the, the might be a, he might have his one bit of paper which he would he, he'd jot down the delta, the, the, the gap, you know, around each mark. He'd, he'd, he'd do that. The rest of it all, all, was all, all in his head. Anyway, on that final day, um, it, would, it just looked like Alinghi were cruising to victory. And, it, you know, there'd been a big dog fight. There'd been teams who didn't fight back. It was all looking, you know, we had our hopes. And they were cruising to victory. And then in my, in my ear, I get the instruction saying, well, uh, right, boys, start, start to wrap, you know, wrap it up. Uh, Pete, you go first. And I looked across and it gave me this wry little smile and produced this, you know, couple of pages of stuff all written out and starts reading it. And I was just, I, I was so shocked because he'd never done this before. And he, I thought, he's, God, he's really worked on this one. And and I had mine all written out, ready to go, you know, for the, for the big moment, team is going to losing the cup, et cetera, et cetera. And he starts reading. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is all the stuff that I've got. And uh, he carried on and he turned around to me and he, was, he just, how about that? And I was looking at him in complete horror because he'd said nearly all the things that I'd been going to say, because we'd both been to have a chat with another guy, another friend called Peter Hallwright, who was uh, Jane Dent's husband. And he had been doing media advice work and stuff and giving us a, a sounding board. And so everything I was going to say, Peter had already said. And he was so thrilled uh, that he delivered all these words so nicely off a piece of paper, which he'd never do before. And I was about to get, you know, I, I was about to be flummoxed. But as, this, as we were look, sort of looking at each other, we looked at the screen and all hell was breaking loose all of a sudden because Team New Zealand had gone on an absolute flyer, as I recall, um, way out on the edge of the course. And they'd picked up a breeze that they thought might possibly be there because they'd been out training uh, all those for all that time. And time of day, it was very late. And they'd picked up this thing and they were coming back in. And well, I mean, any bits of paper just went flying out the window, and uh, and then uh, and we just had to do it for real and wing it, and and it was obviously massively emotional. It was uh, the one second win, the penalty turn on the line, very hard to call. I mean, it was impossible to call, and uh, just such a it was, yeah. You just I was just conscious all the time of getting it right, just getting it right, not saying until I knew, and then filling that gap. Pete had gone off on top dough, and he was just away uh, describing the excitement of it. And then I was having to, you know, come off the bat. Well, we were both completely cranked up. And then, <laughs> then he. Uh... So anyway, we carried it across the line. It was all over, and and he looked at me, and we both just fell about laughing in the emotion of it. Partly because it was just so outrageous what he'd done with a bit of paper, because he'd never done that ever before. Um, but it was just a sort of. Um, pretty hefty outpouring of emotion because it was over. We'd, we'd worked from March until July, massive ups and downs, and then this astonishing crescendo, and then him springing, the, the, springing my notes back at me was just the funniest thing. 
Yeah, I think sometimes um, when you're on a on a deadline or something dramatic happens, it's actually sometimes when your best work emerges. Um, you might remember um, the imagery of you jumping off the back of a, a Volvo boat, what, 2006, I think it was, Pirates of the Caribbean. Obviously, there's some... Uh, imagery you could you could use of, of walking the plank and um, and the like but just you know how far would you go for a story and and you know what sort of experiences um, were you prepared to do to to enhance the story uh, well with that one I'd been asked to do it by <clears throat> the guy who worked for Disney um, <clears throat> who I knew who was a, a, a brilliant producer and um, and he knew I'd be game to to do the leap, and uh, the, but the planning of it, I think one of the biggest things I've seen in, in, in while I've been in, in the in the business is the te- the way the technology has changed. That you know everything now is just so. I mean, I did a tour in America one time, um, and we I was with Bruce, uh, and we were carrying thirteen pieces of kit. Some of it enormous, giant chili bins full of huge lenses. Well, now you'd put the whole lot into a small bag. Everything you need. You'd have a, a gimbal camera. You'd have your, your your radio mics, a little tripod that would fold out. But then you had heaps and heaps of gear. But the, And the logistics of doing the pirate story were that uh, we wanted, we had to get the camera. We had to have a waterproof camera. We had to have a steady cam from the back to get all the different angles of the jump. And then I had to get off and be picked up. And then Bruce had to get off and be picked up. Then there were all these different formats that we had to race back, get, and then you had to um, have these formats uh, transferred onto tape. It was a, a massive logistical exercise. There were no little chips quick into the computer, away you go. It wasn't quite going down to the chemist with your film and getting it developed, but it wasn't far off. And uh, so on, with the pirate story, we because it was Pirates of the Caribbean, because it was Disney, they wanted to do something special and I was prepared to do it and they were prepared to throw their resources at making it happen. And this bloke Willingham, he, he, he lined it up. And so we went out there and, uh, and it was blowing. It was probably 20 plus and it was great. And we were with Paul Kayard and Pirates of the Caribbean. And, and, and what really impressed me was that... Um, Paul Kayard, he did all the different, uh, you know, he did several practice runs. And this is the start, you know, it was a couple of laps around the harbour and out, past Wursa Bay and out. But he made sure he nailed the start and led all the way because he liked, he wanted to get the publicity and for, you know, of, of leading the fleet out. It would look good for his sponsors and also look good for Disney. So uh, we went out and, and did the jump and it was, uh, that was a lot of fun. It was uh, it was good. Yeah. I mean, now you know, anybody can do it now. And then it was it was because of the technology then that it was more testing. I mean, now you're filming yourself. <laughs> I don't think people quite appreciate how much can go into a, a story. But you also became the news for a couple of days when you were caught up in a, a controversy in San Francisco 2013 about something you said when you thought the mic wasn't live. Uh, what what happened there? Yeah. Um, oh, that was really unfortunate and very unpleasant, and uh, and and I was really hung out to dry uh, over that. What had happened was that we were doing breakfast TV, and and I 
live into breakfast TV, and then they'd gone off us, and we were we had to stay with the, we had to stay on air, so I could hear the program in my earpiece, and Pete and I were just uh, chatting about what we were going to, you know, what we what might we, you know, maybe we'll get away earlier this evening. What are you going to do? And I said, well, I, I said something along the lines of, uh, uh, I'd, uh, you know, I'll have a, I'd like to get down to Pier Twenty Three and have a couple of pints of Guinness. And if we get the chance, and uh, and I'll see if I can uh, get to do the Jewish woman. And the Jewish woman was a uh, a lovely girl called Shimrit Berman, who was um, a Jewish woman. And she wanted to talk to me about Joe Alley, because Joe, uh, having an Israeli dad, is hugely you know uh, popular in uh, Israel. And um, and Shimit wanted to quiz me about all this. Anyway, what had happened was that we weren't going live. We were still, I could hear the program going on, but what I didn't know was that we were also live on the internet. And I think it was about 11 or 12 minutes, and this got picked up by people. And, uh, and I was told that uh, I was, you know, it was terrible, it was awful, I'd said something dreadful, and I couldn't, I mean... Oh, if it was now, I might understand it a bit more. But ten years ago, and it is nearly ten years ago, uh, I just couldn't see what the uh, what I'd done wrong. And ironically, oh, good for me, neither could she, because I was told to find her and apologise. And and I tracked her down and I said, "Look, this is the position. This is what it is." And I said, "I'm I'm told I've got to give you huge apologies and blah blah blah." And she said, "Well, what, what have you done?" I said, "I referred to you as a Jewish woman." Uh, off air, you know, as an aside to a pal, because I was hoping to do an interview with you in the evening. And she said, I am a Jewish woman. I said, well, I know, but apparently I've transgressed. So it was really annoying. And, uh, and it, I mean, <laughs> I've always thought I was aware, and I just did not know we were still live on the internet. I mean, I knew, and you are always cautious when you're around, and I just didn't think I'd done anything wrong. Still don't. But apparently, you know, there were people frantically trying to call us and say, you're live, you're live, you two are chattering away. And I think, with all due respect to Pete, um, I mean, it was, it would be, I mean, we just chatted away and not not a single expletive crossed our lips in a dozen or more minutes, which I think says that we were watching our P's and Q's, because you never know. Um, but it was a, it was a, it was all it was pretty unpleasant. But team the guys at Team New Zealand thought it was completely hilarious, so I scored a few points there. And um, and the, uh, there were other <laughs> less savoury sides to it, like people thinking that uh, I was when I was saying you know that it, that I might be having an affair with this Jewish lady, and which was a bit amusing uh, for us and for Claudia because Claudia at the time was working in the uh, in the press room. Um, during the racing, sitting next to Shimron. So, but it's always a lesson. You, you know, I mean, I've, uh, I think it's the only time I've been sort of caught out. Did it make you appreciate how much of a public figure you'd become? Or, or do you think it was more of a, a reflection of the changing face of media? Um, I think it was the start of the PC thing uh, cranking up. It's the only reason I can, I mean, there was absolutely, to my way of looking at it, I mean, it, I could have said, it, it, you know, 
the Scots lass or the Irish woman, uh, and Pete would have known who I was talking about, because we've been talking for quite a long time. And when, and also in the context of it, I mean, that's where the journalists took advantage of the context of uh, you, the word doing. You know, if you you, you, you do an interview, I mean, I, th- I thought in the context of it, there was nothing wrong with what I said, and certainly the party concerned didn't remotely. She quite liked the, notor- the notoriety because it, it got a lot of airplay and a lot of column inches. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was. A, I was. I was quite distressed by it because I, I just thought it was wrong. Uh, it was. I thought what the way I was dealt to and instructed to go and uh, issue an apology. I thought was wrong. Hard to know in retrospect, but it was not. It was not a good experience, I have to say. Except for the fact that the Team New Zealand boys loved it. Well, well, let's look at uh, more of a highlight then, uh, just as we draw to a close um, with this chat. You know, you covered so many America's Cups, Olympics, golf you talked about, Volvo Ocean Races. Is there one event or, or one day that really stands out for you? Ah, oh, Bermuda. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, the, the winning the Cup in Bermuda. I've often re- I always refer to it as the three R's: relief, redemption, and revenge. And uh, that that whole experience of Bermuda was absolutely magical. Being being in it. I mean, we were talking before about you know that. Uh, I mean, I was you know I, I like writing. I was writing a column. I did the I did the old radio piece. Um, Pete was doing the radio all the time. And all, and, and it was a very exciting build-up. And to be in there and see how they operate, and the way it worked, it made you. I was just. It was one of the thrills of my life. And then um, things like you know the way that they dealt with the boat when the when the thing got you know when it got damaged almost beyond repair, and you know to to see the way they went about sorting that out and and the. The, the the lack of a hierarchy and you know things like, simple things in the di- in the dining hall and all the rest of it. And my overwhelming memory, I guess, well, a lots of them. But after the cup was won, we were all called into. There was only one meeting place for that would because uh, it was just all containers and tents. I mean, there was no you know no big fancy buildings like all the other teams had. So we we're in the dining area, and uh, and we. we it's about half. You know, we'd say the cup was won at three o'clock. Then it's like half past five. We're called in for a meeting. Uh, as usual, Shuby was running the meeting. Kevin Shubridge and uh, and uh, you know the, we're just fizzing. He said, "Right, okay, we're not going to hold it, hold you up long for the party. We just want to want you to tell you we haven't been able to. You know, we've shied away from making any plans because we didn't know until we'd got the cup. We couldn't make any plans. Wouldn't make any plans. But this is the thing. And then it said, right." Off you go to your party, have have a really great time, and um, and uh, he said to Dolts, you know, have you got anything to say? And Dolts, you know, he just sort of, he was just about speechless, and uh, he sort of let loose this kind of expletive, and uh, and then the place just absolutely erupted. And I had a nephew working on super yachts there, and he was in his full team New Zealand regalia and he was outside with the other me- just with the media people on the other side of the barrier when we came out and he was standing there miles my, my, my nephew and he, he comes up and he says and he just looked at me with a wide eyes and said what was that and I said what do you mean he said that noise that shout and 
he was trying to describe what it was like because it was a really weird noise. It was it was so many things combined. It was relief, joy, just a huge outpouring of emotion in one big guttural shout. I mean, it was like a primeval. I mean, it was just very spooky and shaking. I mean, it was an amazing, absolutely amazing moment to have and to have been in it and watch it happen was a an absolute complete thrill and a privilege and i was talking about this with claudia you know that was uh which is i was saying it was her i wish she'd been there to share it because it was i mean for, i had a grin on my face for i don't think i've ever slept i'd wake up smiling uh in the middle of the night just smiling for days it was just to see what that team did the way they pulled it off the style the work that they'd put into it, overcoming the disappointment of San Francisco and then absolutely crushing it at the end. It was one of the, the thrills of my life. So was it strange then not to be commentating and, uh, you know, being front and centre for the next one back here in Auckland this year? No, you know, I, 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 when I... I got back and uh, and I, you know I'd I'd left I'd, I'd been retired from Team New Zealand from TVNZ uh, and then six weeks later I'm on my way to Bermuda and so and and I was you know I'd obviously done prep work and got myself sorted out and the early preparation for retirement and then and I, and I had a, quite a lot of projects on since but I was I, to me that kind of it kind of drew a line under that level of commitment I mean. Uh, San Francisco bloody nearly killed me. I mean, it was just a, a ridiculous. I mean, ninety-three days with you know a few hours off here and there. It was just a massive pressure. It was a killer, and then to lose and and horrible, horrible. And then to have uh, the redemption of, of of Bermuda. And I mean, I, I I was involved. You know, I had a few projects on over over Christmas, Christmas in the run up to the cup, and then I worked. Uh, Again, with Toyota on their hospitality program during the Cup. Uh, and it was the first time I'd been on the water watching the America's Cup since 2003. Because uh, in 2007, I was in a, in a windowless box. Uh, same, in, uh, in, uh, in, same in Valencia, same in, uh, uh, in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, and in, you know, most of the time in Bermuda, we watched... We, we were in. We were in the building watching the racing because we were taking notes and everything and getting ready for what we had to do afterwards. But you know, getting out on the water to watch those amazing boats was great. And then that was during the. And I saw it from all kinds of different. Sort of from a really from a punter's point of view, from lots of different viewpoints around you know around the Gulf. And then the match itself, working with Toyota on their hospitality program, was just huge fun. Commentating on a boat. And, uh, and 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 chatting away, it was it was fantastic fun. And again, the style and the way they did it was huge, just great. And uh, and I think uh, you know it's somebody else's turn now. I've done my dash. Yeah, but you haven't quite retired, have you? I mean, there's still lots of little projects here and there. So, what other sort of plans have you got for the short, medium, long term? Um, well, I don't, the little things keep cropping up now and again. Uh, if the, yeah, I mean, I can't see any involvement in the cup if it goes overseas. Uh, I can't see a, any any role for me. As I say, I think it's, uh, you know, it's time for somebody else to step up and do it. I, I had my I had an amazing time doing it. I do enjoy, um, you know, keeping in touch with it and doing little projects now and again. But 
I think now uh, I, I, I wouldn't want to go under the pump again with with that sort of pressure. Although I don't think anybody would. I don't think they'd put anybody under that pressure now. I don't think it. I think it was. Uh, it, it, it wasn't good, and um, I, I wouldn't want. I wouldn't want to to revisit the darker times. And uh, you know, have, uh, leaving on a proper high was great, and I'm happy to just you know fill in doing little bits and pieces. And if uh, can encourage people to go sailing or embrace the America's Cup or anything like that, then uh, I'm happy to give back in that respect. Well, it's always good to hear your voice uh, on on in whatever broadcast it might be. Uh, and, uh, you know, you're in New Zealand. We've employed you for a couple of little projects here and there as well, and we'll continue to do so if we can. Um, but thank you so much for your time. Uh, look, it's been really interesting to, to dive into, I guess, uh, another side of the sport, um, you know, looking at what goes on behind the scenes. And I don't think people quite appreciate the amount of work uh, and thought that goes into a lot of uh, what happens when when they just sort of tune into a broadcast or, or, or see a story. So, so thank you for that. Um, but I can't let you go without um, telling us your story, your worst wipeout ever. And I'm guessing, given your sailing pedigree, um, that there must be one or two in there. Uh-huh. Um, well, there is. Yeah, there, there was one that was serious. Um, but there, there, there was some levity when I was invited down to do the Hebtro Trophy at Worse, at Worse Bay. And I think the main, they get somebody who's uh, doing something in the yachting world, either as a competitor or in the media. And the, the, the plan is, is that you humiliate them as much as possible. And um, so I went and, and have a lot of fun doing it. And so I went down and to Worse Bay and, uh, and I was sailing. A, I've got two metal knees, so I'm not very nimble. And, um, and I think it was a sunburst, horrible little boat, and it was really uncomfortable. Luckily, I had a young kid who knew what he was doing. But the, the the cheer of the day was when I finally got across the start line because I was just upside down. It was blowing 25, 30 knots, and I just could not get it. So I got over the start line and retired and got a cheer for that. But that was that was a light-hearted thing and, and, and a lot of fun working with those people at Worsa Bay. They were great. Um, but the wipeout of my life would have been uh, crossing the Atlantic on uh, on Panda, we we went off in the uh, a little bit early in the season, sort of March, and we were sailing from Fort Lauderdale to Bermuda, and this was a 38 foot fractional rigged uh, uh, racing yacht, uh, aluminium, uh, called Panda, which was one of a series of pandas, and it had been very successful and won things. Anyway, we'd uh, there were four of us on it, and we were sailing along, and we had no. You know, we had a little VHF radio, but we we we, we, did, we had no weather reports or anything, you know, and and there was no internet at the time per se. So you you were just on your own when you were out in the ocean then. And the storm storm the storm first of a series blew up a real winter storm, and um, the unfortunate guy at the helm he managed to do a a really hideous Chinese jibe as the storm was developing. And when we, we just lay flat for an inordinate amount of time uh, with the, uh, I don't know how we didn't lose the rig, with the main jammed up, the boom jammed up against the windward um, backstay, because we'd put both backstays on to support, you know, because it was pretty blowy. That was a disaster, absolutely. And 
uh, we did massive damage um, to the sails and stuff, but we we kept the rig in. And uh, long story short, we got the thing back up right. And I look back on that now, and really, uh, we were incredibly lucky to survive. And uh, and it was the most serious thing I'd, that's ever happened to me at sea. And uh, but we we got it back up. We got the um, storm sails on, and then took off. And then I remember coming back up on watch hours later and by then we'd had it while this was going on we had a whiteout which i'd only ever seen in paper in magazines like adlard's you know the heavy weather sailing adlard kills heavy weather sailing where the water goes white the wind was so ferocious it was you know 60 70 whatever and it was the water was just boiling white uh, but it was flat and then we got the boat squared away and then as i say hours later i got up and i walked in <laughs> My turn to go, I'll watch, and I walked in, and I looked out the cockpit, out through the hatch, and I saw this wall of water, and I'd never seen anything like it. and read about it, but in real life, it was something out of a perfect storm. It was just the most colossal seas I've ever seen. Um, so that would have been my the, the scariest um, moment I had at, at sea, and one I'd be happy not to repeat, although we'd, we, we'd live to tell the tale. And ironically, ended up in Bermuda, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad you live to tell the tale because you t- told some good tales. So um, <laughs> thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to catching up with you for uh, maybe a Guinness um, when we get out of lockdown. That would be an enormous pleasure and, uh, and, and good luck with it. Well, that's it for another episode of Broadreach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. It was a great pleasure catching up with Martin Tasker, who was generous with his time and enjoyable to look back on his vast and decorated career. I'm aware the podcast has been a little irregular lately, which I apologise for, but it's been a particularly busy period. I'm already working on a couple of upcoming ones, so I'll catch you then. Take care.